Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. I'm Sean Walker of Simple Cove, and I'm joined by Hui Huen of the Alabama Woodworker. Hey, Sean. Hey. And God Down Lamp of Guys Woodshop. Yo. 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 <laughs> this podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and to give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shop. We also have a Patreon campaign, and we'd like to thank our newest patron, Alan Solomon. If you'd like to show your support, we're simply asking for a small donation to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash woodshoplife if you would like to show your support. But with that, let's get right into it. Hui, what is your first question? All right. So this question is from Garrett Robertson. He says, hello, fellas. This is Garrett Robertson from HMR Custom Woodcraft. I have a question about building a 36 inch wide by 72 inch long wall hanging that will go up behind a dartboard. The customer wants something to hang on the wall behind a dartboard to protect the drywall behind it. I would like to make it hang from the wall so that they can change or move it in the future instead of permanently attaching it to the wall. My plan is to use a quarter inch ply backing board then make six inch wide by half inch thick panels out of walnut and lay it out in a herringbone pattern going 18 inches to either side from the center. Finally, I plan to trim out around it to cover the ply and give it a more finished look. What would be the best way to attach the panel pieces to the backing ply? Should I glue it up each piece, laminating it to the plywood? Use pin nails and no glue, both? Would it be best to paint the ply behind it to, and leave a slight gap, or can I push them right up against each other? I just want to make sure I don't have any wood movement issues or things like that. Any help you can give would be appreciated and keep up the great work. So I took this question because I've always wondered this, right? Because I see a lot of like herringbone patterns done by folks, uh, you know, a lot of herringbone patterns done like on... Uh, uh, headboards and uh, wall art and things like that. And I always wondered, it's like, okay, how are those attached? And if it's six inch wide, if, if normally you would account for some form of wood movement, wouldn't you want to account for wood movement in the same respect if you, with, with a backer such as this? And my, my intuitive notion would be, yeah, you would. And so my thought and I kind of like his idea of painting the back of it a dark color and then leaving just a little bit of a gap and then gluing um, and then pin nailing it because I don't see why that would be a bad thing. Pin nailing it along the center to allow a little bit of movement. Would I be wrong in that assumption? Am, am I wrong in assuming that it would move? I, I would think that it would. Well, it's wood. Of course, it's going to move. Yeah. So, so what? Like... I mean, how how much of a gap are we talking about? Do you think he would need eighth inch, quarter inch? Probably not a half an inch. I don't think that's necessary. But <laughs> let's go a full inch. Be safe. Yeah, yeah. Full Just inch. to be safe. Just to be safe. I don't know. Like an eighth in it, eighth of an inch. Would you do like maybe some type of um, I don't know, tongue and groove or shiplap type thing with it, so that uh, maybe if you did that, you wouldn't even have to paint the backing board. I mean, what do you guys think? You could. Um, six inches is pretty wide as far as, you know, worrying about it not moving. In other words, six inches is wide enough that I would be a little concerned about wood movement. But, you know, I guess you could think about it like a, a shiplap back in that, you know, I would probably give it an eighth of an inch between each piece. So mm -hmm. on each side, I mean, you could 
do the shiplap method and not have to paint it. If it were me, I mean, I'd probably would uh, just, you know, paint it black mm-hmm. and then, you know, just use a spacer and equally space it. But there was one other thing I was going to say, and I forgot what I was going to say. So, um, well, uh, let, let's go ahead and transfer it over to Guy, and I'll ask Guy, <laughs> pin nails and no glue, glue and pin nails, or just glue? We're at that, there's two things to consider. First of all is the wood expansion and contraction. And we're at that mm-hmm. time of year where it's not real humid, but it's not real dry either. We're mm-hmm. not in the throes of winter or the throes of summer. Mm-hmm. So I would give it, you know, at, at this time of year, which we're recording this on October 13th, I would give it some room for expansion mm-hmm. um, and contraction, but you know, something like this with a herringbone pattern, most of the stuff I've seen, it's not like this is fine furniture finish stuff. Yeah. It's all rustic looking. Mm-hmm. So leaving a small gap between things, I don't think is going to be an issue. Myself, I wouldn't worry about any of that stuff because just it's going it to move. I would yeah. just glue it on, pin nail it down, or however you're going to freaking attach it. Mm-hmm. Put a little spacer there. And for the frame, I would overlap the frame. So in other words, the, the, the frame would have a rabbit on it. Mm. And you'd put a, a leave a, an eighth of an inch all the way around it or a quarter inch all the way. It doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. And you just put a frame around the thing and it's going to move. Yep. I mean, yeah. there's just no way around it. It's going to move and mm-hmm. it's going to split and it's going to ra- It's going to do all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, wood's not meant to do that. Right. So, um, but so long as it's attached to the backer, you know. Yeah, and I mean, it's going to be a, a, a quote unquote, you know, from what from what I see anyway, it's more of a rustic piece. So yeah. if it's got a few pieces that split and check, I mean, who really cares? It's a dartboard backer. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're exactly. not. You're not. You're not sitting down to Thanksgiving dinner at it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So right. I, I think this is this falls under the category of maybe wringing your hands a little bit too much. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, just uh, just go ahead and build it, dude. Yeah. Well, I mean, if I were making it, I would put an eighth inch space in between them, and then mm-hmm. if I were, you know, for the glue and the nails, I would probably put glue only in the center of the panel, and then mm-hmm. use nails. Mm-hmm. So, so that way you it. can yeah. you can still allow it to move instead of yeah. sticking it down to a sheet of plywood and it can't move at all. Mm-hmm. That's sort of what I was thinking too. A, a bead of glue, you know, maybe an inch wide bead of glue down the center or something like that, and just pinning it along the center. Okay, well, cool. I always wondered. I always wondered if like people really cared. You know, you see a lot of these decorative backers and whatnot. And wondering if people really cared about that, or if it is not even worth caring about. Like it, it's just a backer board. It's, it's always worth caring about. If you're yeah, do but it, you, you know, do it to the best of your ability. Right, right, but but I but I see what guy is saying is that like you're kind of going for a more rust if you're going for a more rustic look then does it kind of matter if there's a little split here or gap there or you know, it it's not perfectly aligned if if it's more of that decorative style that you're looking for then maybe it doesn't necessarily matter as much, right? Well, I mean, you also got to keep in mind that it, uh, Garrett says the customer. So you've mm-hmm. got to keep that in mind too, of mm-hmm. what are their expectations if they see it crack and check and all that stuff. Yeah. yeah it's just, well, that's, else. that's where you need to set their expectations. Correct. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a good point. Good point. Well, Garrett, I hope that helps. Um, 
go for it and keep the customer informed, I think is maybe the best answer. So, all right. With that guy, I think you've got the next question. All right. I've got a question from Mike and it says, Hey guys, thanks for asking my last question. I thought I'd return with another. Well, you're, you're welcome, Mike. My question is about water-based finishes and HVLP spraying. I've been looking at buying a Fuji sprayer, but I'm sure it's suitable and also what stage to go for. Mm-hmm. I have a small shop and feel HVLP is the way to go, although I've been advised to go for an airless system instead. Mm-hmm. Mainly be spraying water-based paint finishes, but again, I'm sure if this is suitable with HVLP. I also use a lot of Poly Osmo, Pollux Osmo oil, is this suitable to be sprayed? Any advice would be great. Thanks, Mike. So I'm going to go backwards in his questions. And the first one is if he can use Pollux Osmo oil. I don't know. I've never used it, and I don't have a can of it here to check the instructions on. I guess I could have looked it up ahead of time. That's something to ask the manufacturer if it can be sprayed or not. Uh, that's a wax oil finish. I don't I, think so. Yeah, I don't, I don't think know so if you either. can. I don't think you can spray those or not. I don't think yeah. you can spray those. Mm-hmm. As far as the airless system goes, there, there's a lot of discussion about this. Oh, go airless, go airless. Yeah, well, yeah, that's fine and dandy, but the airless systems are mainly meant to be spraying paint mm-hmm. and to do like walls and ceilings and stuff like that. They're really not meant to do furniture, although a lot of people use them for that. Mm-hmm. I know there's a lot of people that are going to disagree with that too. They're going to say, oh yeah, you need furniture. Yeah, well, yes, you can. Actually, at work, that's what we use is a Graco airless system. Mm-hmm. Um, but you guys are in a chamber, right? You're in a room, correct? Yeah, there's there's actually, it's a, it's a regular finishing booth. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the the, the thing is, um, as far as that goes, the, the HVLP, I think is the way to go because mm-hmm. it's small. It doesn't take up a lot of room. Um, and it's designed to do exactly what you want it to do, which is spray furniture. Mm-hmm. And as far as like looking at these, these systems, I would look at, at, at a minimum of three stage system. Yeah. Yeah. Um, to shoot a lot of these finishes um, they're not going to shoot things like latex or anything like that, but they'll easily shoot pigmented lacquer, pigmented conversion varnish. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they'll also very easily shoot uh, regular water-based poly and things like that. So uh, Sean, I, I, I had sent you that, that Fuji three stage I used to have before I got my Graco. Mm-hmm. The five stage, you've shot a lot of stuff with that, haven't you? Water-based poly and um, latex paint. Really? Thin, yeah, you, yeah. You gotta thin the hell out. Thin of Thin the hell out of it. Yeah. yeah. And that that was difficult because I wasn't. I'm still agreeing at that, but it's very difficult to determine if you've got it thin enough or if you got it too thin when it comes to that. So it was it was very difficult to spray, but it came out it came out great. Yeah, having having a an, an HVOP is amazing. I wish I had more room, but, and I'd use it more often, but it's, man, it, it makes a quick work. You know, I put a polycrylic, several coats of polycrylic on two book cabinets, uh, bookcases rather that I made. And 
it was just so awesome being able to get into tight spots and spray the whole thing in a matter of minutes. With that, three, with that three stage, um, did you have to thin the polycrylic at all or not? I don't think so. No, okay. you don't have to thin the polycrylic. The, the, this last project I did, which was my desk, I, I shot that that um, water-based uh, conversion varnish, which I've done quite a few times. But I always set up my shop to, to spray, which is, you know, mm-hmm. covering everything up. and doing. This last time I didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And uh, I didn't have any issues at all. <laughs> did you? You just had a backdrop. That's it. No, I didn't even have that. I just sprayed it. Oh, okay. I just went ahead and sprayed it. Yeah, I had stuff all over my floor. Even if I covered stuff up, it was everywhere. well with with a uh, with a pigmented or a paint. Yeah, you're going to have that because it's actually got a color to it. Mm-hmm. Um, this I set the 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 settings like really really low. Mm-hmm. I was only getting like maybe a three or four inch pattern on it. Uh, I mean, it was just barely atomizing it, but it worked fine. And I just kept the gun about six inches away and I just sprayed. I had very little overspray and it worked well. I I wasn't worried about it. I just said, screw it. I'm just going to go ahead and just do it. Now with the five stage, you know, if you wanted to go with more viscous materials, then I, I guess like a, like a latex paint or something like that, then would you be able to use a five stage in that case? I don't know. I've never tried. Yeah. I've never uh, sprayed latex. I've always painted. Oh gosh, I can't talk. I've always sprayed um, pigmented lacquer, water-based finishes, um, but not, not latex paint. Um, So I I don't know the answer to that either. I shot quite a bit of latex paint with that three stage that Sean has. And I, I always had to thin the hell out of it. Did you have to use Floetrol as well? I've used Floetrol. I used water. Yeah, more, more, more than anything else, just a lot of water. Yeah. yeah. It ran it through that uh, that cup until it met the criteria mm-hmm. and then went to town. Yeah. And and going through the whatever cup it is, I can't remember the name of it, but yeah, that flow cup, uh, so long as it was in that criteria, did it spray fine? Yeah. Okay. I just felt like it, it required a, more water than I felt comfortable putting in there, but I, you know, just stuck with it and it worked, came out great. I mean, would I rather have a five stage and yeah. not Yeah. Not have to do that. Sure. Because it was like, man, am I putting water on this or am I putting paint? Would you like paint in your water or would you like water in your paint? <laughs> <laughs> How many coats did you have to get to get oh, decent coverage? Uh, Three to four. Oh, that's okay. not too bad. Not, yeah. No, but I'd rather do it less if I could. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But it dries pretty quick. Oh, yeah. And like latex paint. Yeah, and mm-hmm. sand it a little bit, wipe it off, do another yeah. coat. Yeah, I, can, yeah. I think I got three coats on in a day. Yeah. But it was also yeah. really, really warm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Yeah. You know, the, the water-based lacquers and conversion varnishes, yeah are a lot like that. You can shoot three or four in a day because you only have to wait an hour between coats. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can get them pigmented too. So, right. you know, they, they, they work really, really well. And it's definitely an alternative to the latex. And you don't have to thin it with the three stage. Yeah, yeah. So, 
Um, I believe, and again, he's got to check the answer to this, but to just get back on that polyexosma oil, I believe that has to be spread on, um, wiped, wiped on, and then and then sort of wiped off and buffed off. Uh, I don't think it's. I, I just can't imagine that you would be able to spray that. And plus, but, you you're supposed to put it on a really thin. I yeah, think. and if you yeah. spray it, it'd be very difficult to. You'd waste a lot of product, I think. Yeah, and this stuff's not stuff's, cheap. Yeah, it's expensive. Um, well, I think it's a lot like the the um, uh, the stuff that's made for flooring, but everybody's putting on furniture. Rubio, Rubio. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a lot like the Rubio monocoat, and you've mm-hmm. used a lot of that stuff. Would you consider spraying that? We. No, no, because okay, well, I mean, a little can goes a long way and it's expensive. Yeah, I would not recommend that. Um, and I don't and I don't you're going to get good enough coverage with just uh, spreading it with oil, um, with a, a cloth or whatnot, a sponge, whatever, uh, whatever PolyX recommends. All right. Well, hopefully that helps. I think the next one is me. Back, That's you. Back to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, how do you guys remove squeeze out on inside corners? Let's assume that you forgot to do any prep work for squeeze out. Is the only option short, repetitive, tedious strokes with sandpaper and scrapers? It seems like any other sanding options leave cross grain stra- scratches. Blue bees woodworking. Well, hmm. I mean, if I have a buildup, what I like to do on inside corners, if I have a buildup, I like to take a, um, uh, what are they called? Man. Totally just went blank on that. It's a um, a chisel plane. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know, remove as much as I can. But then obviously you're going to have to scrape and sand. Uh, carefully scrape, um, you know, feather it out a little bit so you don't dig a hole in the back or wherever it's at. Um, you know, it just depends on also what kind of, you know, how much you need to sand. Depends on the glue that you use, I guess. If you use, you know, like a high glue, you can probably get away with less. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, if you're using your regular tight bond glue, I mean, you're just going to have to scrape and sand and, you know, use something, get a uh, paper towel wet with, you know, denatured alcohol, mineral spirits or something like that and wipe it to see what it's going to look like when you apply finish. If you, you know, if you don't see a, a light area from the glue, um, you know, progress up the grits until you match everything else that you've sanded and then apply your finish. But, you know, I don't think there's any magic, uh, any, any secret sauce to this. Um, I use the, uh, the little, the plane that I mentioned, the chisel plane. And, and then it's just a matter of slowly sanding and scraping. I I try not to scrape too much. Um, Mm -hmm. but you know, if you do scrape, you're going to remove, it's a more aggressive approach than sandpaper. Um, it just depends on how bad of a squeeze out it is, but it shouldn't take you too long. If you, you know, use that combination very carefully use a scraper. Uh, and then work up the grits with the sandpaper. But I mean, I can't think of any other option other than, than what I said. Um, and that you definitely have to be careful with, with cross grain scratches, you know, it's, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it doesn't take much and, and then you'll be sanding a whole lot more. It, it's easy to, it's easy to do, but hard to remove. Um, do you guys have any more, any more tips for blue bees on removing squeeze out on inside corners? The, uh, you know, those Rockler silicone glue brushes uh on the end of them they have like a little spatula type deal going on and i like use yeah it's like a little paddle um it's i don't know maybe about three quarters of an inch wide or something like that i can't remember they're 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 
pretty small. But uh, I like using that when the glue is still a little wet and just scraping it clean. Um, and then that way I don't have to scrape scrape it away with like a sandpaper or scraper. Um, sometimes I like going at it with a, with a damp rag and just collecting it, collecting the glue while it's still wet. And uh, something else that I've been starting to use uh, is, a, is a little toothbrush uh, to go in there. But what if the glue is dried? Yeah, well, chisel yeah, plane. I think that's more of his question. Is what what do you do after it's dried already? Yeah, chisel plane. I like using the chisel plane or a set of chisels. So, guy, yeah. what what do you got? <sighs> Throw the piece out and start over. Here's, <laughs> here's, here's 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 the 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 pivotal thing in 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 his question. We'll call him Blue because I don't know his name. It's just Blueby's word. We'll call him Blue. So let's assume that you forgot to do any prep work for squeeze out. Yeah, yeah. Let's assume that I would never, ever do that. <laughs> because that that's the God's honest truth. Yeah. Um, I clean, there, there's two schools of thought. One is... You know, you clean it up before it dries. You clean it up while it's still a little bit tacky and you can like pull it off. And, you know, it it really depends on the type of wood I'm using. If I'm using an open grain wood, let's say like walnut or ash or oak or something mm-hmm. like that, where I know that the glue can get down inside the cracks, mm-hmm. I'm very careful about how much I clean that up with water beforehand mm-hmm. yeah. before it dries. Cause it can work its way into those cracks mm-hmm. pores and uh, into the pores. Yeah. Okay. I want to make sure I was on. I'm sorry. Yeah. Into the wood grain and it yeah. can cause you a lot of problems. And I've done the same thing, you know, I've used the, the spatula on the end of the glue brush and I actually wrap a, a t-shirt material around it and I clean it up that way. Yeah. But like I said, it's always going to leave a little, if you've got an open grain wood, you, there's a chance that it's going to actually work the glue into the into the grain. So if I'm doing that, and I'm at home anyways, not in a production shop. In a production shop, I always clean it up, regardless of the wood type. It gets cleaned up beforehand before it goes to sanding. Mm-hmm. Um, but if I'm at home, I'm I'm cognizant of that inside corner, and I use high glue. Yeah, that yes. way I don't have to worry about it. And it doesn't affect the finish. Yeah. Or, yeah. So, yeah. but if you're using a closed grain wood, more like like a maple or a cherry or something like that, it's real easy just to wipe that stuff off beforehand, yeah. before it dries. My recommendation, no matter what, is to get that stuff before it dries. Because once it dries, it's a pain in the butt. Yeah. I mean, it should be part of your system. You you cannot forget to do the prep work for it, which is, you know, I, I don't know if I call it prep work, but I just call it cleaning it up. Yeah. The other thing that I've noticed, especially with open grain wood, is when you have like, so say like a panel glue up. And I know he's talking about inside corners, but I've come across this and it's just some additional information is panel glue ups with open grain wood, particularly with something like a white oak. When I allow that glue squeeze out to tack up a little bit and kind of be able, you know, where I can scrape it off, it 
it just grabs the grain so much that it actually will sometimes rip up some of the grain along that seam. Yeah. Um, and, and that can mm-hmm. be, oh, I hate so I'm not a fan of that. I'd rather get yeah. it off there while it's still wet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's just me, though. Yeah. So with maple, gotta, do you with any- maple, I can do that. Maple, I can let it dry a little bit. And it what, won't. What, what were we going to say, Sean? Oh, nothing. I was, I was going to let Hui finish. Okay. My bad. Go ahead, man. No, you go ahead. You're, you're no, no, sp- that was it. That was it. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so bad. Do God, do you have any other tips for blue on if it's already dried other than uh, scrapers? Chisel. chisel. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Chisel with the, the, the bevel side down. Mm. Um, yep. And just very carefully get it out of there. That's about all you can do. I wouldn't use a scraper because you're going across the grain. That's really going to cause more uh, damage. It depends on how you're doing it. Not necessarily going across the grain. Yeah, I, I, I dig that. I dig that. But still, it, it it's it's just, for me, it's a lot easier just getting it off with a chisel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that would be my answer. Chisel. All right. Well. Hopefully, chisel, scraper, sandpaper, and a chisel plane give you a few options there. But it sounds like you're aware of uh, the work it's going to take if you let it set. So with that, it's off to uh, Hui. Okay, so this is from Scott. And he's talking about a very rudimentary workbench that he put together here. So for this question, I have a 4 by 4 bench. You guessed it, two by four frames screwed and glued to four by four legs with one sheet of 23 30 seconds plywood cut in half, hence the four by four top that's screwed down. I did not glue the top. My thought is that I can change or flip it if one of the sides gets beat, gets beat up. Uh, there is a slight crown in my bench top. The center is a bit higher than the edges and the corners are the lowest. What are your suggestions on flattening this out? It became a problem mostly hand planing as the corner is lower and the workpiece tips up. Um, it sounds like to me that whatever cross member you have along that center um, might be higher than the rest of the outside border. And I'd probably take off that top and maybe plane down that center beam that you have that's it's sort of a, a allowing the half sheet of plywood to be supported uh that would be my did he thought. say there was a center beam he didn't but right. if it's i mean i would i would hope that there there would be well, cross four by four it's pretty small yeah but would you not have at least a, a place to tack down the board i mean would it just yeah. be i don't know um well if that's the case I would put a center, I would put a center beam, if you did, don't have, I put a center beam on there and then just tack the center down to bring it down um, to take that crown out. Um, but we've talked about this before. I've never had a piece of plywood that was perfectly flat. Um, they always have a little bow or a little cup to it or whatnot. I mean, it's just the nature of having plywood. Um, MDF tends to be a little bit better. But even at that, it's still pretty flexible. So it's going to take on whatever flex or whatever contour your bench is. Um, <coughs> any any suggestions, guys, on you know what uh, what he could do? If it's just the plywood, it, 
I, I don't. It, it, it didn't go a lot of detail of how he joined these two pieces of plywood together. Yeah. If he didn't glue them together, mm-hmm. and there's just let's say an air pocket that's kind of like in the center, you need to yeah. screw them together and True. get rid of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there is a beam down mm-hmm. the center, which I hope there is, I, I, don't, I don't mean to say that that he didn't do it, but I hope there is. Mm-hmm. Like you said, you know, level that beam out and screw the center to the beam. Yeah, Sean, what do you just to back up? What do you mean gluing them together? He only used he used one sheet of plywood and cut it in half to get a four by four, and he screwed it down. I'm guessing to the legs. Well, I, I'm assuming that he took the the two halves and flipped them over and made an inch and a half thick top. Hmm. Maybe I got that wrong. Oh, I don't know. I don't know. This I mean, is the difficult possible. part of answering questions. <laughs> okay. We're not exactly sure. Yeah. Well, that's what I assumed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, May, if he didn't do that, then forget everything I just said. And I see what you're saying. If 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 he's got that bow in the center and he just screws it down to the you know second piece of plywood, that'll help take out that crown. Yeah. 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 I, I think you, Scott, you got a couple of options. It's you really need to take that plywood off and, and focus on the base, make sure everything, you know, is level uh, in the same plane. Um, if you have a center stretcher, you know, make sure all of that is perfectly, take a straight edge, lay it on there, make sure from corner to corner, side to side, everything looks, looks good. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, get a piece of MDF and, and put it on there and see if, uh, you know, see how it is before you screw it down. But the other option is that, you know, since you're bringing hand planes into the mix and it looks like you're going to be using this for more than just a basic bench, I would look at doing a, a torsion box top mm, um, yeah. and, and attaching that. It's going to give you some weight, some stability. You may have to beef up the the uh, the base to, to hold something like that, depending on the, the overall the weight and if you're going to be using it for hand planing. Uh, but I would give that a try. And, you know, if you're doing more and more handwork on there, you may just have to look at the possibility of building a, you know, proper, a proper workbench with, you know, laminating some pieces for a slab top and Mm -hmm. building a structure for the base. Let me ask you this, Sean, uh, with what you were suggesting, which is a torsion box top or torsion box sub sub base sub top, um, he could still keep that two by four frame, just create a lattice underneath, correct? I mean, and, yeah. and what and what would you, I mean, would you make that lattice out of like plywood, just regular plywood underneath or what would you do? Well, why would you need a, are you talking about the strengthen in the base? Uh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about just the, the torsion box itself. You mean for the honeycomb structure? Yeah, yeah. When I made mine, I cut small pieces of MDF. Okay. Yeah. And uh, built the um, and built the the webbing on the inside. So I had a sheet of MDF on the bottom, a webbing on the inside with you know turn them sideways pieces of MDF. That I don't remember the width of them, two or three inches. Turn them yeah. on their side, nail them. Created a you know a little grid, and then put another sheet of MDF on top. Screwed it down to that. I think I screwed it down to that, or glued it and nailed it. Either one. Mm-hmm. I got a video of how I did it. I've already forgotten. <laughs> and that just creates one thick top that's yeah. dead flat. And I even have a video I discussed making sure the base is level when I built the top. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But yeah, the key is to start when you start flat and square, you end up with flat and square or something like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think you did the same thing for your assembly table, right, guy? Yeah, I, mm-hmm. I made a torsion box for it. Yeah. But then again, you know, I mean, 
he's talking about using hand tools on it. And uh, if you're things. really serious about doing hand tool work, you need a dead flat yeah. surface. And you're going to need some case, clamping. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In which case I would do what Sean had touched on a little bit before, which is make a, you know, like a butcher block style mm-hmm. top and go through all that, get a nice solid dead, dead blow type surface. Um, yeah, that's just my my feelings. On you it. could continue throwing time, money, effort at this problem mm-hmm. because if you put something on there and it's flat and you're good to go, when you start, you know, putting stress on it with hand planing, you're going to be flexing it. It's the base isn't may not be exactly sturdy enough for you. It's time to you know to analyze what your your future plans are, and then you know there are all kinds of example basic workbenches that you can build. Mine's made out of poplar. It wouldn't, it was cheap at the time that I built it. Um, and just build a basic workbench. I mean, guys workbench is, you know, it's what size is it? Two by two? No, it's about, it's less than four by less than three. (laughs) I think it's like 42 by 30 or something like that. Yeah. Uh, it's close to four by three. And it's yeah. the perfect size because I only have so much room I can put in there. But then again, I'm not a hand tool person. Yeah, I use hand tools, but not for everything. Mm-hmm. Only for hand planing down to thickness. Yeah, I, know, I never, <laughs> I never do that. Milling. Yeah, I only use it for like you know when I'm hand cutting dovetails. It's nice like that. Yeah. yeah. This will work. <laughs> yeah, because you don't do that either. Anyway, and ripping lumber, uh-huh. yeah. resawing. Okay, yeah. cool. Well. Guy, what do you got for us? I have a question from Brian. And Brian asks, I have a question regarding cutting and joining two by 45 degree angles, which I'm assuming is like 45 degree angles. This mostly applies using hardwood, not plywood and thicker stock like six quarter and eight quarter for things like waterfall style table or bench. I have a festival track saw, which is what I use to cut my 45s. I think that it's pretty dialed in when I check the angle after the cut, but for some reason when I join the 245s, it's always a few degrees off from 90. For what it's worth, I join the 45s with dominoes. I'm just having difficulty getting a perfectly even square joint. Don't really know if it's a clamping or cutting issue, to be honest. Any suggestions on clamping or cutting that would help with this issue? And he says, I'm not opposed to making a table saw sled just for one cutting the 45s, but that's not really an option for larger pieces. Brian. So, Brian, the cutting a long miter like that is not for the faint of heart. Hmm. And I don't care at what level woodworking you're at. It's tough to do yeah. long miters. That's not just like a regular 45. That's what I call a case miter. Sure. Or you're taking something that's, you know, maybe two feet or longer and you're cutting a 45 expecting it to get a 90 degree, you know, that'd be with something like a slab or a casework piece or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's tough, man. And unless you have, you know, a really expensive sliding table saw like we do at work, um, you're forced to use something like the Festool track saw. And the track saw is a good option mainly because it's it's like a free form type thing. You don't need a reference surface. 
You mm-hmm. just decide where you're going to cut it and cut it. Depending on the Festool track saw to make a perfect 45 on a long case piece, not going to happen. Mm-hmm. I've done this multiple times and I'm telling you, it's not accurate enough. It's close, but it's never going to be perfect. And what it sounds like you're doing, Brian, is you're seeking perfection. So here's how I've handled it. My main things, you know, especially when I've, when I've worked on slabs like this and done 45 degree waterfall, you know, from the, the tabletop to the legs, which mm-hmm. believe it or not, I've done my fair number of them. I don't really concern myself with what it looks like underneath because nobody's looking at it from underneath the table. I'm more concerned about what you see from the outside. Mm. And what I'll do is I I use biscuits. I don't use dominoes because biscuits are a little bit more forgiving than dominoes. Mm -hmm. I'll double row them, but I'll put the two pieces. I'll I'll get the, the, the biscuits in there. I'll test fit it, and I can almost guarantee you that it's going to be open either on the, the outside miter or the inside of the miter. Mm-hmm. And in which case, I pull it back apart. I try to figure, you know, using just my logic of which edge is which, I take a, a hand plane and I start removing material. Mm. There's really no way to do it other than to fine tune it with, with hand tools. Um, that I have found. I mean, Sean, I think you've done a lot of this type of work, haven't you? Um, you've done some of it. I've, I've done some. Um, nothing really big, though. Um, I mean, I would. I use the uh, the table saw. I did use the forty five degree chamfering bit in the router table. I wasn't a fan of that. Um, well, I mean, if you've got a, he's talking slab work on eight that's, quarter. That's big. Yeah, stock. that's thick. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. I'm not doing anything that big. Yeah. yeah, but you know, one way to fix that is to get a known perfect forty-five degree block, stick it on the inside face, and use a hand plane. But you can use that as a reference piece mm-hmm. to make sure that the the what you're cleaning up is exactly forty-five degrees. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Guy, what's the what's the thickest material you can do on the router table with your forty-five degree chamfer bit? Like thirteen sixteenths. Okay, so it's not even a full inch, yeah. No, it's designed to do three quarter inch stock. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. I've used a track saw in this situation before, but very much like you, I care more about the outside, how it looks to the eye than the inside, and that's sort of what I've done. Um, have Have any of you have any of you ever used like a clamping square or anything like that to sort of help ensure that it stays square during clamping? Well, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, just to get it to that point, mm-hmm. I mean, it, it takes some fine tuning. And the, the sure. track saw, while accurate, is not precision. Mm-hmm. It's just easy to deflect and move. and Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a precision thing. Yeah, and I see what you're saying. Yeah, so, I, you kind of have to go at it with a hand plane, I see, yeah. Yeah, I, yeah. And I, I mean, the last one I did, it took me five minutes to cut with the track saw. And I think I spent like maybe two hours fine tuning the the 45 yeah. with the hand plane. It t- takes a little time. I mean, if you want to get it right, it takes time. How but wide was, was 
It was over 24 inches. It might have been 30 inches, but it was, you know, a big, big slab. Yeah. I had to have, you know, every time I would do it, I had to have a guy come over and help me put the thing up there and get it on. And, (laughs) you know, and it took, it took time. It was a process. There's there's really no way around it. Mm -hmm. Um, There's no quick answer to this. Yeah. Tackle it with, you know, maybe a low angle jack and, you know, the good thing that, that I have tried and used is take like an eight quarter piece of hardwood, cut a dead perfect 45 on it, Mm -hmm. use some double sided taper, clamp the edges, and then, you know, use that as a reference, butter right up to the edge Mm -hmm. and you'll get a good, a good, uh, surface that you can, you know, join on the other side with biscuits and glue and, uh, but yeah, go at it with a sharp plane, take light passes and that's a, a good method of cleaning it up. Yeah, yeah. Low angle Jack. I think it's like a number 62. Is that it? Yeah. Yeah. Something like that. Yeah. Something like that. That's, that's what I use for something like that. It's end grain. It's, it's pretty tough. It's tough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it, there's not, there's no, there's no easy way to do this, Brian. It's going to take some time. Yeah. And the track saw, like I said, while works, it's not precision enough to make it perfect. Yeah. It's going to require get, it, a little bit of work after time, after you cut it. Yeah. Get you 80% there, but then the other 20% is <laughs> two hours worth of work. With the, yeah. The hand play. And some yeah. guys maybe will do a quicker nap. That's how long it takes me to do it. Sure, sure. At least that's what I tell my boss. <laughs> oh, a couple hours. Yeah. Uh, well, I think I've got the next and the final question, and this is from Jeff. Hi, guys. Watching YouTube videos, I see more and more people using dust masks, breathing apparatuses these days. As an old guy, I'm even older than Guy. This oh, my gosh. No, he's <laughs> 93. No, I'm oh. Oh. <laughs> this equipment was never available or even thought of many years ago. Perhaps we would slip on some safety glasses and call it quits. I must confess... <laughs> A lot of my pottering around in the shed is done with just a pair of thongs. I think maybe in the U.S. you guys call them flip-flops. Yeah. I wasn't thinking thongs. I knew it was. Well, he says, edit, I don't want you guys thinking I'm wondering around my shed in a G-string. Thongs, (laughs) translation between countries varies. I live in Australia. Anyways, these days I see people wearing breathing masks, filters, respirators that start from a simple mouth covering such as a mask to an outrageously looking respirators that look like something from the Star Wars movie set. Yeah. Do you guys use breathing protection? If so, what type and your thoughts behind your choices? P.S. I'm older than Guy and don't own a saw stop, so please answer as soon as you can as my time on earth is limited. <laughs> <laughs> I like this guy. Yes. Yeah, I think that gets the uh, award for the question of the episode right there. Yeah. Well, good. you know, when I started woodworking, um, I'm the type of person when I take on something new, I research and research and watch, watch, watch videos. I picked up the habit of going straight to the respirator. So I used the 3M half face piece respirator with P100 uh, filters for dust particles. That's the little pink pil- uh, mm-hmm. pink filters on the side. Mm-hmm. Um, and then while I'm finishing, applying finish, I will swap those out for the organic vapor cartridge uh, thingies that go on the side. Yeah, the trapezoidal um, ones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, and, and you know, I... I started with that and then, you know, cause I've tried the, the cheap dust masks that, you know, you strap on behind your head and those little paper ones. And 
they they don't last as long. They're not as comfortable. They probably don't do a good enough job. The same as the P100s. Um, so I, you know, I, I stick with the three. I'm actually have two of them. I keep, you know, the organic vapor cartridge ones on one of them, and a, and then I keep the P100s on the other set. Um, and you know, it's it's I try to wear it. It's difficult because I, you know, it's just too easy when you have limited time in the shop to walk out there, start working, make a cut, do whatever, leave the shop, come back in, you know, have 20 more minutes, 30 minutes, 40 minutes. You know, I really do slip uh, from wearing that, and I and I try to remember to wear. It. But when I apply finish, I definitely wear the uh, the organic vapor cartridges because you know that stuff is bad for you. But it also it gives me a headache and it messes with my sinus. So I, I definitely try to always remember to wear that when I'm applying finish. But you know, the thoughts behind my choices, I wanted to make sure that I can wear the best respirator best setup for my health but something that's also comfortable and mm-hmm. you know something that's reusable whereas you can take these off replace the filters clean them out with soap and water um and they're 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 semi-comfortable but you know it could be a whole lot worse but i, I just try to make sure that i need to make a make it a point to do a better job of it but you know wearing wearing the mask in the when i'm in the shop um, but these, this is my setup to 3M for both of those is, is what I use and they've worked great. And, um, that, that was my, the thoughts behind my choices. Um, Hui, what do, what do you use in the, in the shop? So I have a 3M just like you. I also have the ellipse, uh, which is a lower profile and, and I actually find it to be a little bit more comfortable, um, because it doesn't have the uh, the cartridges going off on the side, they're a little bit closer to my face, uh, so I can see a little bit better, you know, peripherally. I mean, I should be wearing the face mask more, the respirator more often. I don't, even though it's right there in one of my drawers, right next to my workbench. Uh, but I don't know. I don't know what to say other than um, you should be wearing one because it's you know, breathing in sawdust and especially the fine stuff is not really that great for you. Um, no, it's not, it's not good for you at all. <laughs> Some of it is. <laughs> Some of it is. Yeah, yeah. species. Yeah. Yeah. You know, that, that walnut stuff is, mm, <laughs> um, coca bolo. Uh, I mean, I- I'm guilty of not wearing it enough or more often. Um, but th- I will say that times where I'm really a lot more cognizant of trying to wear it is like when I'm resawing at the bandsaw because you know the bandsaw is not that greatest at collecting dust um and so it uh, tends to you know you just tend to have a lot more of that that fine dust going all over the place especially when resawing yeah Yeah. if 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 I've got a long session of sanding going on I'll I'll wear it but uh, I used to wear it a lot more often, and I, I, you know, ever since I moved into my new shop, I hadn't been thinking about it as much. I, I don't know why. Maybe just because it's not. I don't know. I, in the new shop, I haven't been wearing it as much. In my older shop, I was wearing it all the time. Um, but again, like I said, I think I think you should. Uh, I think it's a good idea. Uh, will it kill you if you don't wear it all the time? Probably not. But. I don't it's know. It's definitely not good for you. No, it's not no, good I, for I, you. I, I, I wear one maybe, I want to say, 30 to 40% of the time, mainly when I'm sanding. Yeah. Now, I have a, um, 
the 3M one that everybody's got. Mm-hmm. And I mainly use that with the, uh, uh, the pink ones. No, with the organic compound ones for when I'm spraying. Oh, gotcha. Uh, I also have the ellipse mask, mm-hmm. which is a very nice mask. It's, it, it's very low profile. It doesn't weigh 18,000 pounds. Yeah. And it fits underneath my glasses really well. Mm-hmm. So I wear that quite a bit um, when I'm sanding. But yeah. that's pretty much the only time I wear it. Yeah. Um, I, I rely quite heavily on my, my dust collector with the HEPA filter. Sure. And it does a pretty darn good job. Uh, unless I'm doing something that's creating a lot of fine dusk, I, dusk, dust, I, I don't wear one. Um, have you seen some of these like full face things oh, yeah. that fit over your head and they got the, yeah. the fan in the back? And yeah. yeah. Those are like the trend, um, I forget what they call them. Yeah. The face yeah. shield. Something like a whole face shield. They're expensive. That's like about five yeah. or $600, I think. And a lot of They're expensive, those. yeah. What's that? A lot of Turners use those. Yeah, yeah. I've seen a lot of Turners use them. And and I can imagine that uh, if you're in a spray booth for like hours on end, probably not a bad idea to have something like that. See, the guy that runs our spray booth, Jim. He doesn't wear anything. (laughs) He doesn't. And he's not shooting water-based stuff, man. He's he's shooting lacquer and has been for 45 years and doesn't wear a mask. Oof, no way. He's, and he's older than I am by about three or four years. Oof. Uh, I, yeah. I walk I'd, back there and I, I don't, the smell almost knocks me over. I'd, I'd worry uh, about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, you know how it is. You, 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 some people, you just can't tell them anything. So there's no point to it. You know, he's going to do what he's going to do. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I, I wear one pretty religiously when I, when I spray, if I'm just like, putting on armor seal no i don't bother with it yeah me neither but if i'm spraying definitely yeah, wearing the uh, organic one. vapor one uh, any any oil-based finish i'm wearing it i mean it especially if it's a uh, water locks Ugh, i hate that smell of that stuff so i love I like the look this, we've had this discussion before. i like the smell of that yeah you're <laughs> disgusting <laughs> you're weird. i am disgusting <laughs> I'm gonna Man, give you some waterlocks these... cologne. <laughs> <laughs> can you get that? I actually would like a cologne that smells like money. <laughs> I mean, I can probably make you a waterlocks cologne. Yeah, I just uh, put waterlocks all over. It would me. spray waterlocks on you. <laughs> yeah, that'd be a good idea. Well, I'm looking at some of these, you know, respirators. The trend one is 450 bucks. Is it for the full face thing with the battery operated and all that? Oh yeah, and but then yeah, there are different- I mean, if you're serious about it, though, I you know, I, I look at all that stuff kind of like I, I look at the saw stop. I mean, is it necessary? Maybe not, but if it makes you feel safer, rock and roll, man, do yeah. it, yeah. do it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it makes you safer with the respirator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Holy moly, the three M one with the fan on the back of it and thirteen. 1200 bucks 1200 bucks for that thing yeah i mean but but you know this is for like metal workers grinding sanding machine operators i mean yeah then again i'm I'm gonna i'm gonna make that 
equation back to Sawstop. Yeah. They keep saying, how much are your fingers worth? You get in an accident, it's going to cost you this much to get surgery and blah, 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 blah. How much yeah. are your lungs worth to you? Yeah, but there's yeah. cheaper alternatives than those $1,300 respirators. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but you understand what I'm saying. Absolutely, 100%. There, there's, a good, there's a good way to rationalize it in your own head if that's what you want. I mean- For if, sure. If, if, uh, if that really concerns you- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's this is all very. It's a very subjective thing. I mean, there is no right. There's right a zero or a one with the saw stop, whereas there are cheaper respirators and thirteen hundred dollar respirators. Yeah. Whereas it's like saw stop or no saw stop, is what I, the way I look at it. Yeah, yeah. it's binary. Yeah, um, yeah I, I dig that, but you understand what I'm saying, Sean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's an argument both ways. And like I said, if it if it really concerns you that much, um, you know, get one of the full facing. I feel pretty good wearing that ellipse. Yeah. I really like that thing. It wasn't real expensive. It was like I think around forty dollars. Yeah. And the yep. cartridges are like maybe twenty bucks mm-hmm. to replace them, and I do that every six months or so. Mm-hmm. I won't wore one at work for a couple weeks. Um, I couldn't take, <laughs> but, um, I, I, I do wear one. You never see me wear it on video or in pictures. You gotta, you gotta look good for the video. No, you, exactly. Yeah. What's the point of yeah. showing my beautiful face if I got it covered up? Yeah. In the and if you had those full face ones, you, you could definitely do a video looking like you're in outer space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to give that impression, but no. anyway, so, um, <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. Jeff, appreciate the. The humor to end the show. That was a pretty good question. We appreciate it. So I think that'll do it for this show. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you have questions that you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM our Instagram account at woodshoplife. We'd also like to thank everyone who left a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps in the search rankings. And of course, We truly appreciate the support and feedback, and we do need some more iTunes reviews. So definitely head on over and do that. You can reach me at simplecove.com where you can share all of your projects and at simplecove on Instagram and YouTube. Hui, where can they find you? You can find me at alabamawoodworker.com. All my links to my social media are on my website. And Guy, where can we find you? Uh, You can find me at Guy's Woodshop on guyswoodshop.com, guyswoodshop on YouTube, and guyswoodshop on Instagram. Just do a search for guyswoodshop, and I'll come up and just about everything. Including Tinder. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Tinder? What's Tinder? Mm-hmm. I don't know. I think it's a place to buy lumber. <laughs> <laughs> Tinder. That's a good one. I like it. All um, right. Great. Thanks for listening. Good episode, fellas. We'll see you all in a couple of weeks. All right. See you in a couple. See you. Bye. Bye now.